0: go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter, excuse me, Acts chapter 18, we've been coming through the book of Acts together, we're in verses 18 through 28 this morning, Father, thank you that we can come before you right now and petition you for help. Lord, we know we need it. We need strength from you, and we need strength from you, God, to understand your word. We need strength from you, Lord, to understand it in deep ways that affect our souls, affect our hearts. So, God, please help us this morning. Holy Spirit, we want to be addressed by you. Please address us through your word this morning. Open our eyes to see. Give us hearts to obey and worship. Incline our ears, Lord, to be encouraged, to be encouraged by your word. Lord, you're so good to let us do what we're about to do right now. This holy moment, these holy moments of meditation on the truth. Thank you for them, Lord. Help us to do all of this, Lord Jesus, and the ability that you supply. In Jesus' name, amen. The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. That's what Jesus said. The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I've been thinking a lot about this word as I've studied Acts 18, about this word laborers. Uh, Every Christian called to be a laborer in God's kingdom. You know, the book of Acts is really an explosion of laborers on this world. If you... um, you take the book of Acts, we see a few streams that are being traced out for us through Peter and his ministry and Paul and his ministry. But the reality is, is you get a little glimpse every now and then that out of Jerusalem, laborers were exploding on the world everywhere, everywhere. And that's what we read about in the book of Acts. So I'm talking about, I've been thinking about laborers, all Christians being laborers for the kingdom of God. Now, the passage that we're about to read in a little bit. Uh, Starting verse 18 all the way to verse 28. What we see here is Paul is going to leave from Corinth and he's going to go. Remember he was in Corinth for almost two years. And he's going to go into Ephesus. And so there's going to be this open door for the gospel in Ephesus. And he begins to preach in Ephesus. And all of a sudden some people want to listen to him in Ephesus. But he can't stay there. Paul can't stay there. So he has to leave and he has to go to another place. And so is God going to raise up laborers in Ephesus? And yes, he does. We read about Apollos. We read about Priscilla and Aquila. So we see laborers being raised up in Ephesus as we read this passage. We're going to read in just a minute. Before we do that, though, I want you to think about something with me. Um, Twice in the Gospels, we see this pattern. Jesus sees the multitudes, the crowds. And he's moved with compassion, it says. Now that happened happened many times, but twice it says he saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion. And the reason this given is because they were like sheep that had no shepherd. that's a reference back to the Old Testament of that promised shepherd king, the Messiah that would come. That he looked out over the multitudes and he saw these people are without their Messiah. They're without their shepherd king. They're like sheep without a shepherd and he's moved with love for them. Don't you love that about Christ? Don't you love that about Christ? Now, as he's moved with compassion... As He looks at the crowds, because there's sheep with no shepherd, well, well uh, what does He do? What are the actions that He takes? And in these two passages where we see that, in one passage we see that He commands them to pray for laborers then. With this motivation of compassion for the multitude, they have no shepherd, therefore pray for laborers to be sent out into the harvest. That's the first thing. And the other thing that He does is He begins to train or teach His laborers how to be laborers. Teach His disciples how to be how to be laborers. So in both of these connections. Compassion. Because he sees the crowds are like sheep without a shepherd. He commands them to pray for laborers. And then he teaches them to be laborers. Now we see that in. Uh, just to give you those verses. If you want to go back. I, I believe they're on a study guide there. If you have it. Uh, Matthew 9 verse 35 through 38. You can go back and look at that later. But if you go look at that passage of scripture. Matthew 9 verse 35 through 38. You see Jesus. And he's going from town to town, city to city, village to village. And he's preaching and he's teaching and he's healing. That's what he's doing all over the place. And then he says, he's moved with compassion for the crowds are like sheep with no shepherd. And he says, listen, disciples, listen up. Listen up. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And what we're going to see in Acts 18 is a new harvest is going to open up. And that new harvest field that opens up is this city called Ephesus, which is going to get a lot of attention in our Bibles, in our New Testament. This city called Ephesus. And we're going to see God raise up laborers and answer prayers like that to send laborers into this harvest of Ephesus. Now, that's the, that's the first thing. Now, that, that other place I said that Jesus not only told them to pray for, it, but he teaches them to be laborers. You can read about that in all four Gospels. I'll give you one place. Mark chapter 6, verse thirty. Through 44. Again, you go back and look at that passage. Jesus sees the multitudes. He's moved with love. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They don't have their Messiah. And so, what does He do? You've got 25,000 people. That's the multitudes He's looking at in this passage. This is the feeding of the thousands. If you count women and children and men, 25,000 people strong in the wilderness. That's the multitudes that He's looking on with compassion. And Jesus wants his disciples he's going to teach them something here he wants them to see the impossibility of, of the task that's in front of them to feed these people. he wants them to see that they are insufficient to feed these thousands and thousands of people so he says this to him he looks at him he says you feed them Of course the disciples complain, How are we going to feed 25,000 strong in the wilderness? How are we going to do that? So then Jesus, again, he wants them to see the impossibility. He wants them to see their weakness. And he says, okay, well, here's what I want you to do then. Go find, go tell me all, do an inventory. Tell me all the food you've got. Tell me about all the food you've got. And they go gather up all the food they've got to feed the multitudes. And what they find, all they have is just a little lad's lunch sack. He's got a little boy's lunch. And the little boy offers up his lunch and Jesus, Jesus wants them to see that this little lad, this little boy's lunch compared to 25,000 strong is nothing. It cannot feed these people. But they offer it to him and God takes these, Christ takes these meager resources and uses them to feed thousands. He takes these meager resources measly little resources that they offered up to him and he uses it to feed thousands. And how does, he do, how does he do it? He doesn't just drop bread everywhere out in front of everybody. Rather, he fills up the basket of his 12 and sends them out and they give it to the people. They come back, he fills up the basket again. They walk out and give it to the people. They come back, he fills up the basket again. And he's teaching them, just bring me your measly resources as a laborer and you'll feed my people, you'll feed thousands. And so Jesus is filled with compassion for the multitudes. They're like sheep with no shepherd. He says, pray for laborers. And he says, I'm going to teach you to be a laborer. I'm going to teach you to come to me with your little bit of resources. And I'm going to use it to feed thousands. he tells them to pray for laborers. He teaches them to be laborers. Now we're going to see this sort of thing play out in Acts 18. One more thing before we read our passage. Um. This idea that I'm putting before you of, of all Christians being laborers, um, this was an early conviction of Grace Community Church. I mean, there were several things early on at the very beginning of this church that, that, uh, that we wanted to go after, that, that God had taken several men and women and convicted us of these truths. And one of those, one of those foundational truths was that God caused every Christian to be a laborer. Uh, Ephesians 4 verse 11 and 12, it says, God gave some to be, and it mentions the gifts of pastor and teacher. Why? It says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. That's the equipping of all the saints for labor, to be laborers for the work of the ministry. Or to use another verse, Matthew 28 verse 19 says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. So one conviction was this, all disciples making disciples, all Christians, every member of the church, a laborer in God's kingdom. That was a conviction from the very beginning. Now, as we look at this passage of scripture. We're thinking about laborers and all Christians being laborers. Here's how I don't want you to hear this. Don't hear this as some sort of rebuke towards you that, hey, church, what in the world are you doing? You need to labor. What's going on here? It's not like that at all. In fact, I want you to be encouraged that I have been very encouraged. And I know several of you have been very encouraged about what God has done. That early conviction of all Christians, every member of the church being laborers in the kingdom of God. God has helped us. Don't you see it? So many things, even in the last couple of months of of, uh, uh, laborers uh, fully set apart, laborers wanting to be missionaries or or laborers preaching the gospel in their jobs, Uh, uh, physical therapists uh, preaching preaching the gospel up at Bellhaven, getting a chance to teach a class and preaching the gospel at Bellhaven, or nurses getting a chance to preach the gospel over there at MC through classes and stuff like that or uh, ministry at the abortion place or mama's taking care of these babies and preaching the gospel to these children. Just so much labor that I see happen. I'm encouraged by that. So don't hear this today as we look at this passage as they rebuke saying, what are we doing Hear it as an encouragement to say, praise God for what he's done. But let's press into more. Let's ask God for more maturity in this area. Let's ask him to grow us, to grow us in this area. Of every member of the church. Being laborers. Now let's read our passage. If you're not already there. Acts 18. Let's just work hard. To get the plain sense of what's here. I'm just going to read a passage. Make a comment. Read a passage. Make a comment. Work hard to see. Lean in and see. What is the plain sense? Just what's, what's here. Look at verse 18. After this. Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him, Priscilla and Aquila at century. He had his, he had, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow and they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So let's stay there and talk for just a minute. It says here at the very beginning, he stayed there many days longer in Corinth. Now why did he stay longer in Corinth? Very possibly... If you remember what happened, we looked at this last week that the government and Corinth had decided that they're not they're actually not going to prosecute Paul. So this is kind of one of the one of the few cities that he's entered into where they're not slamming him in jail somewhere. And so he feels some freedom. Maybe he sticks around for a little bit longer, but he stays in Corinth for almost two years. And then when he finally leaves Corinth, it says here at the very beginning that Priscilla and Aquila go with him. Do you remember Priscilla and Aquila? These are the folks he ran into when he was in Corinth. They were tent makers. They labored alongside Paul. They worked alongside Paul. Paul uh, had the same trade as them. This is Priscilla and Aquila. And then it says at Sintra he gets a haircut. Okay. He gets a haircut. Now, why does he get this haircut? It says here in, in the passage, for he was under a vow. So he had been under a vow. And the ending of that vow was that he got his haircut here at this place called Sintra. This is the end of the vow that he took. Now most people believe that this, is, this was a Nazarite vow. If you go back to Numbers chapter six, you can read about the Nazarite vow that the Jews would do. And the reason why most people believe that's what the vow is is because there's this connection between a vow that he took and the ending of that vow being the hair being cut. And you go read in number six and you see this Nazarite vow where during the time of the vow, they would let their hair grow out without it being cut. Now, why would he take a vow like this? most jews took vows like this because they were overwhelmed with thanksgiving to god so he maybe he's overwhelmed with thanksgiving to god because he stood before the leader of the land galio and they didn't prosecute him and he got to keep preaching the gospel maybe he took a 30-day nazarite vow now as we keep reading we're going to see that he feels like he needs to get to jerusalem and it's possible because this is what they would do they would cut that hair at the end of the vow they would cut their hair and take that vow and they would burn it in the temple in Jerusalem. So maybe this is the reason that he's heading back to Jerusalem. We don't know that 100%, but there's something going on here with a vow and him getting his hair cut. Now, it says in this passage, we just read, they came to this place called Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, they leave Corinth, they come to Ephesus. It's a very, very important city, Ephesus. It's the, it's the fourth greatest city at this time. Is the fourth greatest city. In the Roman Empire, talking about uh, massive, beautiful architecture everywhere to see. They had a theater that would seat 24,000 people. Imagine this at this time. The most famous building they had in Ephesus was the Temple of Artemis. It was one of the Seven Wonders of the ancient world. And these people were zealous, and these Ephesians were zealous over their false god. You can read that about that in Acts chapter 19. As a riot uh, eventually rises up against. Paul over this false god, a very zealous people for their false god. And I want to commend very quickly, just commend a study to you. Um, if you want, if you want to do a good study on planting a healthy church in a pagan city, just study Ephesus and Ephesians. Look up every place in your New Testament where you can find some sort of insight about Ephesus or something about the Ephesians. There's a lot there, more than you would expect. You see things about Ephesus and the Ephesian church in Acts 18, Acts 19, Acts 20. Of course, the letter to the Ephesians. First Timothy is written to Timothy while he's remaining in Ephesus and even in Revelation chapter 2. So if you want a good study, I commend it to you. I'll, I'll do a study on Ephesus and the Ephesians to see some really amazing stuff about planting a healthy church in a pagan city. So they come to Ephesus. Now, Paul begins to evangelize there in the temple. And after he evangelizes in the temple, he's reasoning with them. They ask him to stay longer. But he can't stay for whatever reason. Maybe it has to do with that vow. But for whatever reason, he feels like he cannot stay. Although they ask him to stay longer. In that last verse, he says this. He says, I will return to you. Which he does in chapter 19. But he says, I will return to you. Listen to this phrase. If God wills. I will return to you, he says, if God wills. Now that's a living out of James chapter 4, verse 13 through 16. If you go read that passage that James wrote, James said this. He said, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we're going to go to such and such a city and spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. He He says, how do you know what tomorrow brings? What's your life? Your life's a vapor that appears for a short time and it vanishes away. Instead, here's what you ought to say. You ought to say, if the Lord wills. if the, You ought to say, if the Lord wills. We will do this or that or sell this or that. But right now you boast in your arrogance. So, so when Paul says, I will return to you if God wills. That is a living out of. Not that, I'm not saying he got it from James, but this is a living out of that command that we say. You ought to say, if God wills, we will do these things. Now, it's more than just the words, right? I think it'd be good for us to certainly employ those words since, since uh, James said, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. We certainly should employ those words. But it's more than the words. It's about a heart that is humbled before God that realizes human frailty. I can say I'm coming back to Ephesus, but I'm frail as a human. I could say I'm coming back to Ephesus, but God is sovereign above all. He determines my path. I might plan my steps, but He determines my path ultimately. So I must say it. I must more importantly feel this reality of if God wills, I'm going to return to Ephesus. Now, so go to verse 22 and 23. He left Ephesus and then we see in verse 22. When he had landed at Caesarea, He went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So if you look, if you study the geography and you study those words going up to the church, if you study that, what you realize is he lands in Caesarea, comes from Ephesus, lands in Caesarea. And he goes up to the church at Jerusalem. Again, for whatever reason, he goes to the church at Jerusalem. Then he goes down to the church at Antioch, which is his home church. So he goes back. Just like he did in the first missionary journey, he left out of Antioch, came back to Antioch. Now in the second missionary journey, he left out of Antioch and now he has come back to the church at Antioch. So this is the ending of... If, you, if you're not careful, you'll miss it Here's very quick. This is the ending of the second missionary journey and the beginning of the third missionary journey. As it says, he departs. he's sent back out and it says he goes right back into that same Galatian region. Remember, he, in the first missionary journey, he went to this region. In the second missionary journey, he went back to that region to strengthen the souls of the disciples. And now we see in the third missionary journey, he goes back to that same region to strengthen the souls of the disciples. Now, the the writer Luke, he skips over all this pretty fast, right? You're talking about thousands of miles have been traveled. A whole lot of time has gone by. And you just got a couple sentences that are devoted to that by the writer Luke. He just goes by it pretty fast. Why? Because he's trying to get us back to Ephesus. There's There's a focus that the writer Luke, by the Holy Spirit, wants to have here on Ephesus. So when we come back to verse 24, we see the focus is back on where he came from. The city called Ephesus. Look at verse 24. We're going to read 24 through 26. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. There's our focus back on Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They took him aside and explained the way of God more accurately. So here they're back in Ephesus. And there's this guy named Apollos who shows up on the scene. Now who is this man Apollos? Apollos is a North African Jew. He is from Alexandria, Egypt, it says. This is a very famous city. Alexandria would be a city that would rival Athens in its reputation for intellectualism and sophistication. This, this city would rival even Athens in those realms. So he, he's, he comes from Alexandria. He's a very gifted a very influential and, and highly gifted man. This man, Apollos. Now we know that because after he's corrected here and he goes on in his ministry. Eventually, if you read the letter to the First Corinthians the letter to the Corinthians, First Corinthians. If you read that letter, Apollos is put right alongside Paul and Peter and even Jesus himself. It says some follow Paul and some follow Apollos and some follow Peter and some follow. Christ. And so this is a very gifted and influential man in in the early in the early church. And look at verse 25 again. He had been instructed. So this man, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, it says he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he's teaching and speaking accurately the things of Christ, it's accurate, but it's incomplete. He only knows the baptism of John. Okay, so what exactly, what exactly would, would this man, this man Apollos, what exactly would he be, would he be teaching here? What is it that he's teaching that's accurate, but it's incomplete? It needs to be made complete by Priscilla and Aquila. What's he teaching here? Well, one, one way to think about it is to think about John the Baptist. John the Baptist came to prepare the way of Christ. Remember him. It says he knew the baptism of John. John the Baptist came to prepare the way of Christ. You remember that, right? So he he comes and John the Baptist became famous before he even knew Jesus. People were coming from everywhere before he even identified Christ as the Messiah in our Gospels. People were coming from everywhere to hear this man talk about one that's coming whose shoestrings he's not even worthy to untie. And so this man, he, he gains a following from all over the place. Maybe Apollos was one of these followers. Maybe he traveled in to hear John preach at some point and took it back to Alexandria, Egypt. But this is who John the Baptist was. Now, at some point, John the, John the Baptist put his finger on Jesus and said, that's him. That's the one I've been talking about. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, at the end of John's life, right before he dies when he's in prison, there's a little bit of doubt there. He's not sure what to think. He sends his disciples and says, Hey, could, could, uh, are you the one or, or are we waiting for another one? But either way, he had, had this. So this is who John is. So I want you to think about what would Apollos, connected to John the Baptist, what would Apollos be teaching here in the synagogue? Certainly, he would know things about Jesus the Messiah from Genesis to Malachi, that's the whole Old Testament. He would know that there's a promised one that was promised to, cut, to crush Satan's head. That there was a promised one, Christ, that was promised that he would bless all the nations. That there was coming one that would be wounded for our transgressions and yet he would be the king of glory forever and ever. Therefore, he would die for sinners and yet he would rise from the dead. He would preach about this one from Genesis to Malachi. And then he would know that Jesus is that one. He taught and and preached accurately the things concerning Jesus. He would teach that Jesus was that one. But where would his incompleteness come? It would come in that those things that happened post-John. As John decreased and Christ increased. And what you see is Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He completes the work. He rises from the dead. He ascends on high. And in Acts chapter 2, he poured out the Holy Spirit on his church. That they might be witnesses in all nations. And this would be the incomplete part of what Apollos is preaching. And so... And so we need a laborer. So we got a laborer to Ephesus and, Ap- and Apollos, but we need a laborer to come alongside and, and help Apollos have a more complete knowledge of the truth. And that's what we see in verse 26 with Priscilla and Aquila. So he began, verse 26, he began to speak bold in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside. Imagine that. They took him aside. And they explained to him the way of God more accurately. So they, so you remember Priscilla and Aquila? According to verse nineteen, they've been left in Ephesus while Paul went to Jerusalem. So they're left in Ephesus, and they hear Apollos teaching in the synagogue. Can you try to imagine that? They're listening to Apollos. Man, that's right. That's good. Amen. Yeah, that's right. That's good, man. This guy's preaching the word right. He's speaking about our Savior. Look at that. And then he gets to the end of it and there's just this this incompleteness because he only knows the baptism of John. So what do they do? They don't scream out in the synagogue and correct him in front of everybody. They pull him aside. Maybe they have him over for dinner and say, brother, that stuff you were just sharing was good and it was sweet to my soul. But look, let me make a slight correction. Let me add to you some complete knowledge about Christ. Do you know that he finished the work? That He hung on the cross and He screamed. It's finished. The sin is paid for. Do you know that He's risen from the dead? Do you know that eyewitnesses saw Him rise? And saw Him ascend on high? He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Right now. And He poured out the Holy Spirit on His church. Do you know these things? Apollos. So they teach Him these things. And apparently. Apparently it had a good effect. Look at verse 27 and 28. And when he wished to cross to Achaia. Now he is Apollos. And Achaia is talking about Corinth. You can see that in Acts 19.1. While Apollos was at Corinth. So verse 27. And when he wished to cross to Achaia. The brothers encouraged him. And wrote to the disciples. Remember there's a church in Corinth now. So they wrote to the disciples in Corinth. To welcome him. And when he arrived. He greatly helped those who. Through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So now we've got Apollos is sent to Corinth. So, so he, he um, uh, Paul went from Corinth, planted church, came to Ephesus, initial meeting in Ephesus of those people, and now we see Apollos starts in Ephesus, and he goes back to Corinth. So he sent to Corinth and it says he greatly helped the church there. He greatly helped them when he arrived. Now, what are the Christians called in verse 27? Those saints that he greatly helped, what what are they called? And I want you to look at this beautiful phrase in verse 27. Those who through grace had believed. Now that, think about that. Those who through grace had believed. That is a beautiful, beautiful phrase. That shows the powerful sovereignty of God in our salvation. It does not say those who believe and therefore receive grace. It says those who through grace believe. That you need the grace of God. Even your faith is a gift from God. This is beautiful sovereignty of God in salvation. As He rips people out of darkness. Brings them into light. He gives them to great the grace to even believe. It's beautiful. And those kind of phrases are, as you know by now, those kind of phrases are scattered all throughout the book of Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 13, I believe it's verse, uh, verse 48 or 49 there. It speaks about uh, all those who were appointed to eternal life believed. All those who were appointed to eternal life. God in His sovereign power from before time began has been, has been working to elect His people and yank them out of darkness and bring them. In the Christ. Beautiful phrase here. Now, how does Apollos, it says he greatly helped them. How does he greatly help the church? Verse 28 again. This is what he did to greatly help the church. He powerfully refuted, means he overtook them in debate, he overtook them in argument. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public. He's going public and he's preaching out publicly and he powerfully refutes them. How? He takes the Scriptures and from the Scriptures he shows them that the Christ is Jesus. Man, that's a help to the church. To stand up and take the Scriptures to show that Christ is Jesus, even directed at an unbelieving world, is such a great help to those who through grace have already believed. Now, here's what I want to do. I want us to, this, this is the plain sense of the passage. I hope you see it here, okay? You got from Ephesus and Paul heads back to uh, Jerusalem and then back to Antioch and he begins his third missionary journey. And all these miles are being traveled by Paul and all this time it has gone by and then it zones back in on Ephesus and you got Apollos raised up as a laborer. Priscilla and Aquila raised up as laborers in Ephesus. And I want us to think for just a minute and consider God's diverse Laborers in this passage. I want you to be encouraged as we look at each one. Be encouraged in your work. The equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the labor of the ministry. we look at these laborers, these diverse laborers, be encouraged in your own labors for Christ. First one we see is Paul. Now we've seen Paul, we've seen Paul laboring since Acts chapter 9. When he was saved in Acts chapter 9, we've been seeing things about him all the way through, so I won't say as much about him. But I'll say this, he is a good encouragement, is he not, that God even uses ex-persecutors of the church to be his laborers. In fact, you go study the gospel of Mark and the first missionary that Jesus sends out is a man that was possessed by legions of demons, cutting himself and perverted and living among the tombs somewhere. And God takes that man, rescues him and sends him out as a missionary. God uses people like this. So Paul is our first labor. Now, there's two phrases here in Acts 18 that I want to put before you that show Uh, uh, what he looks like as a laborer. Two phrases. One is in verse 19. You can glance down at it. Verse 19. They came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself, so Paul, listen, he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Remember, that word reason is how we always hear uh, Paul's evangelism being described. He reasoned with them from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. He reasoned with them and persuaded them in Acts 18. And then here in Acts 18, he goes into the synagogue and reasons with them. And here's what I want you to see. Paul is a relentless evangelist. He just keeps reasoning and reasoning and reasoning. He gets beat out of one synagogue, so he goes into another. He's a relentless evangelist with his gospel. Okay, so this is his labors. Second phrase I want you to see is in verse 23. The very end of verse 23. Last four words. Strengthening all the disciples. Strengthening all the disciples. Remember, he's already been in this region twice th- that we know of. And yet he goes back there again. And he's just his aim is I want to strengthen these churches. I want to strengthen these believers, these disciples. So so here's Paul's the laborer. He's a relentless evangelist and he is a constant disciple strengthener. And so much of our lives as laborers in God's kingdom can be wrapped up in these two phrases. What do we do toward the world? What do we do toward the church? How do we labor to bring the gospel to the world in evangelism? How do we labor to go after building up the saints, to take Christians and make them stronger in Christ? This is his labor. Now, I want us to adopt Paul's actions. But maybe even more than his actions, or at least underneath his actions, we need to adopt Paul's heart. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, I want to read this verse. And he's referring back to his time in Ephesus. And he says this in verse 24. This is his heart. This is what drove him to be a relentless evangelist and a constant disciple-strengthener. This is what drove him. Look at verse 24. But I do not count, I do not account my life of any value, nor... As precious to myself. Did you hear the selflessness there? I do not count my life of any value. Nor as precious to myself. But. What does he say? If only I may finish my course. And the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And that's the heart that I want us to have as we imitate his actions, we also imitate his heart. we got Paul as a laborer. Second laborer is Apollos, we see in our passage. We see Apollos raised up. Paul had to leave, so God raised up a, a laborer in Apollos. Now, I want to mention to you five quick points about this man. Okay, it's the first time we see him, so we'll spend a little bit more time here. Five quick points about Apollos. Number one, he was a well-educated intellectual. He was a well-educated intellectual. It says he was from Alexandria. Remember, Alexandria is the, this epitome of intellectualism and sophistication. That's where he's from. And it says in verse 24, he was an eloquent man. Apollos was an eloquent man. That word eloquent means a learned man. He was skilled in literature and the arts. He was versed in history and the antiquities. He had all those things. So he had gone through what we would call the university. And he had been to graduate school. He wasn't like Priscilla and Aquila. You know, they just had their trade, right? But he had been to the university. He had, he had, he's a graduate here. He's, he's an intellectual. Number two, he was mighty in the scripture and yet teachable. He was mighty in the scripture and yet and yet teachable verse 24 says he was competent in the scriptures now the NAS says he was mighty or powerful in the scriptures in other words he could powerfully handle the truth he could rightly handle the word of truth this this word for competent or mighty in the scriptures it comes from a word group that we get the word dynamite from he was explosive in the word of God he was dynamite in the scriptures that's the idea now now That's true. He was able to rightly divide the word of truth, which is very important for laborers. But he wasn't beyond being taught. Even by lowly tent makers. He wasn't above being taught. So he's mighty in the scriptures. And as we see in our passage, he was willing to be taught. Number three about Apollos. He was a man on fire. He was a man on fire. And I say that from verse 25. Verse 25 says he was fervent, in spirit. Now that word fervent is to boil with heat. He was a man boiling with heat. He was on fire for God. He had a soul that burned for the glory of Christ. This man was fervent in spirit. Another place where that same Greek word is used is Romans 12, 11. When we're commanded, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Burn for the glory of God is the command. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones used to speak about preaching as logic on fire. Logic is the truth. On fire is the way it's preached. So it's logic on fire. Listen to this from Martin Lloyd-Jones' uh, book called Preaching and Preachers. He says this. What is preaching? Logic on fire. Preaching is theology coming through a man who is on fire. And then he spoke about the tragedy. And the shame of the way we have divided these things in our culture. That somebody might have some sort of fire and and burn for God over here, but it's not rooted in the truth, so it's a false fire. Or the other way, that somebody might have sound theology and sound doctrine, but they don't burn in their souls for these truths. It's not leading them to worship God. And he speaks about the tragedy of these things being separated, but we see it in Apollos, right? If you look at verse, verse 25 here, look at what we see in Apollos. It says he was being and being fervent in spirit. That's the fire part. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. That's the logic on fire. Now, fourth thing about Apollos, he was a powerfully effective communicator of the gospel. He was a powerfully effective public. Communicator. We see that in verse 26 as he's opening up his mouth to preaching in the synagogues. We see it in verse 28 as he is, as he is uh, uh, going into court and he's publicly debating or publicly arguing against the Jews there. He's a very powerfully effective public communicator, which which this set him apart a little bit in a different way from Paul. And that might surprise you, that that would make him a little different from Paul. But let me give you this little verse here over in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. In verse 10, and listen to what it says about Paul. They say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. So here's this reputation that Paul has. He's weak in his bodily presence and his speech is of no account. But not Apollos. Apollos is an eloquent man that, that is strong and effective in his public preaching or his public Communication of the truth. Now, fifth thing and last thing I'll say about Apollos. He was a highly gifted, highly gifted and influential leader. Now, again, we saw that in 1 Corinthians, right? Uh, some follow Paul, some follow Peter, and some follow Apollos. So he's put alongside some very influential men. He's very gifted, very influential. Now, the body of Christ does not consist only of very uh influential highly gifted men now that might be the way that me or you would have designed it right let's just have a bunch of apollos uh folks like apollos Let's just have a bunch of them in the church the church is nothing but that but here's the deal you don't get to design the church and jesus's design is better than yours and he has a different plan everybody is not like Apollo's. Everybody's not highly gifted, uh, influential like this man, like we see here. Everybody's not like him. God has a different design. Now, there are, God does raise up men like this, and they are a part of the body of Christ. And we ought to pray that God would give us more men like this, that God would send out missionaries like this, or whatever it might be, that God would raise up this part of the body of Christ. But the body of Christ doesn't only Consist of folks like Apollos. Now let's go to the third group of laborers, and we'll put these two together, Priscilla and Aquila. These, uh, this married couple, laborers for the kingdom of God as a married couple, Priscilla and Aquila. Now I love the contrast between Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos. I love this contrast. With, with Priscilla and Aquila, we've just got regular folks that are from Pontus. You see that in Acts eighteen two, just regular folks. From Pontus, you say well, I, I never heard of Pontus. Exactly, it is not Alexandria, Egypt. They're not from Alexandria. They're from Pontus. This is like somebody, you know, uh, somebody saying, well, I'm from London." I'm like, oh, "I'm from Pearl." <laughs> you see the similarities? This, this, they're just regular folks from Pontus here. This, this, this is these people, and they're just blue collar tent makers. Priscilla and Aquila, just you know, just blue collar. 10 makers making a living, went to trade school or something, got this trade that they're living off of. And I love this, that right in the midst, you think about Priscilla and Aquila and their simplicity and they're so normal. They're just, they're so regular. And yet right in the midst of that, we see two bold, truth loving laborers. They're so normal. They're so regular, but they're bold, truth loving laborers. You say, why do you say that? Because you look at verse 26 and what happened? Apollo's comes along, and he's, hey, man, he's doing well, but he's got some police stuff. And they pull him aside, and they love the truth, and they help this man and shoot him out as a missionary to Corinth. Or Early on in Acts, Acts 18, we see them uh, coming to, to Paul, and they, they seem, it seems like they house Paul. Or at the very least, they help him financially because he begins to work with them. So he's helped, they're helping missionaries. They're laboring for the kingdom of God. They're taking the word privately to Apollo's. And we've got many other places in the scripture that speak about Priscilla and Aquila. First Corinthians chapter sixteen and verse nineteen it says, "The church, Priscilla and Aquila, and the church that meets in their house." Just normal laborers, so regular, so normal, blue collar tin makers. And they're having the church is coming and meeting in their home. Or you go to Romans sixteen. I want to read this to you real quick. You don't have to flip there, but Romans sixteen. I love this little passage about Priscilla and Aquila. Just normal folks. But it says this, 16.3 says, Greek, Christa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Paul says, those are my fellow laborers. Those are my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life. That man and that woman risked their necks for the gospel. In fact, they risked their necks for my life. To whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Now they got another church. Again, they're being hospitable and meeting in their house. So these are the laborers that are laid out for us here. The God's diverse laborers. Paul, Apollos, and Priscilla, and Aquila. Um, I want you to see that they're all laborers, but they're not all the same said diverse laborers. They're all laborers, but they're not all exactly the same people. Do, do you see, In what we're reading right now, are you picking up on this, the beauty of diversity and unity in the body of Christ? Do you see it? Just beautiful unity around being labor, same mission, same gospel, same spirit, but the diversity of these people raised up to do God's work. Do you see it? Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is where I first started using the language diversity in unity. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look verse 4. Talking about the body of Christ and it says, Now there were varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. You see that? Diversity and unity variety of gifts in the body of Christ, the same Holy Spirit. And there are varieties of service but the same Lord. you see it again? And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. So body of Christ is like a body. We don't have unity in the sense that everybody's a hand. We have unity in the sense that there are hands and feet and nose and ears and eyes and all parts of the body. But the unity is in they are one body together. So diversity, the beauty of diversity in unity. Now, now let me just give you three quick examples that you see in Acts 18. It should be there on your study guide. In the body of Christ, each member carries the same. So this is unity. We have the same glorious gospel. But there's a diversity in In communication abilities of that gospel. Think about it. Paul, Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila. Same glorious gospel about Christ crucified who died for sinners. They had the same glorious gospel. And yet it says Paul, his speech is of no account. Apollos is an eloquent man and Priscilla and Aquila don't seem to be public speakers at all. So unity in the same gospel But diversity in communication abilities. I want you to think about this. Is the Holy Spirit and His mission to make the gospel known in all the earth. Is the Holy Spirit dependent on men and women's speaking abilities? And I hope you say, no, the Holy Spirit is not dependent. God distributes, the Holy Spirit distributes gifts in those ways as He pleases. But He is not dependent on man's speaking abilities. A quote that, that kind of, just thinking about this, resonated with me. And I think it, if I remember right, I, I read some different things. I couldn't remember where I got it from. But, but I think it came from Jack MacArthur, which is John MacArthur's father. And, and he, he was talking about people that seemed to be more eloquent than him. And they just, he just said they just obviously are. They, they speak better. My speech is more contemptible. Theirs is not. And he said, he said look, they, they might preach the gospel better than me, but they can't preach a better gospel. And I think it's good for all of us to think about that, that. Nobody can preach a better gospel than what you have if you have the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ. God, the Holy Spirit is not dependent on man's speaking abilities. He distributes those abilities as he pleases. Another example, in the body of Christ, uh, this unity and diversity, each member is indwelled by the same powerful spirit. And yet there's diversity in giftings. And giftings of the Holy Spirit. For example, Paul is an apostle. Uh, Apollos is not an apostle. But he obviously has some sort of leadership gifts. And Priscilla and Aquila seem to be gifted in, in less public ways. But nonetheless, they're all gifted in different ways. But same powerful Holy Spirit at work in them. The Holy Spirit is not less powerfully at work in Priscilla and Aquila than he is in Apollos. Same spirit, different gifts. In the body of Christ. Third example. In the body of Christ. We all have the same word proclaiming mission. That's unity. The same word proclaiming mission. And yet we have a diversity of roles in that mission. So we see the more public roles here in Acts 18. Like Apollos and and Paul have more public roles. uh, And they're ministering the word. They're preaching the word. We see that clearly. And then we see. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they, they're still ministering the word, but it seems to be in more in more private ways or a private a private role. Now, what am I getting at? Why am I telling you all this? So this beauty, go with me here. Hear me out. This beauty of unity and diversity. Why am I telling you all this? Here, here's the reason why. Hear me out. The Holy Spirit... Is not interested in using one kind of person, one kind of personality, one kind of gifting to advance his kingdom. He's not interested in that. Maybe that's the way we would do, we would just make everybody talk. Nothing but apostles. That's what we do. Maybe we would do it that way. But God's design is more beautiful than ours. And so he's not interested in using one kind of personality, one kind of person, one kind of gifting. He He has His diversity in the body of Christ, but all laborers for his kingdom. I want us to get that. It's a beautiful thing that he's doing. What we see here in, in this passage that we're in is we see a diversity of abilities, gifts, and roles. We see married laborers. Priscilla and Nicola, we see single laborers in Paul. We see male laborers and female laborers. We see laborers who are laboring while they work a secular job, a tent making. We see laborers laboring as they're fully set apart for the ministry. But all are laboring in this, this beautiful diversity that God, that God has designed. Now I want us to pick up on that. We want to be a church. Tell me if I'm right. We want to be a church full of. Remember, this is a conviction from the very beginning. We want to be a church full of laborers, right? Amen? That's what we want. We want to be that full of laborers. Every member of Grace Community Church, a laborer in the kingdom of God. That's what we long to go after. Now, it's very important, if that's going to happen, it's very important that we see the beauty of this unity and diversity. Diversity and unity amongst laborers in the body of Christ. Now why? Why is that true? Why is it so important? If we're going to be a church full of labors, why is it so important that we see the beautiful diversity and unity amongst labors in the body of Christ? Why? Is that such an important thing? Because if we do not do that, listen to me, we're going to make the same error, the same sin, that so many churches in our culture have made. To where in the church, you've got this one little elite group of special forces Christian that do all the labor, and everybody else is trying to stay out of jail. And that mistake has been made again and again and again. you got this one little group of laborers here, and everybody else just kind of lives their life and stays, stays out of trouble, right? If we don't see the beauty of 1 Corinthians 12, unity and diversity, we will fall to that exact same error, that exact same sin. Now let me show you that from 1 Corinthians 12. Look at 1 Corinthians 12. I want to show you two ancient errors. Two uh, ancient sinful mindsets that still are in the church today in different forms. These are ancient sinful mindsets. Look at verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, I try to try to catch the sinful mindset. Listen, in the body of Christ, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, try to catch it, same mindset, sinful mindset, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. It's an ancient, sinful mindset in the body of Christ. Because I'm not like so-and-so. Because I don't look like that guy. Oh man, he's so gifted. Look at Apollos. I'm just from Pontus. I'm just a tin maker. I'm not like them. Because of that sinful mindset, do you think the person saying that sees the beauty of diversity and unity? No. They don't see it. They think everybody needs to be like Apollos. And what do you think that does to the church? It divides the church up into this this same era. Here's the special forces, laborers, and everybody else just lives their Christian life. Look at the second simple mindset. Verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand. Try to catch the mindset. I have no need of you. Now we're going the other way. I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. You see the pride in that? Does this person saying this see the beauty of diversity and unity in the body of Christ? No, because I think everybody should look like them. And what does it do to the church? Here's this elite force of of laborers and everybody else. Just live their life. And I'm jealous that we do not walk in these sinful mindsets. I'm jealous for our church that we are that, that we uh, take notice of this, that we watch out for this, that we fight it tooth and nail, and that we go after a beautiful diversity of labors, all labors in the local church. Gifted by God in different ways, given different roles, different personalities, different people. All of the above. Now let me close just by saying this. I want to in light of that let me speak um with these two errors in mind let me speak to the most gifted individual in this room okay the most gifted highly gifted influential let me speak to the most gifted brother this is the most gifted brother or sister in this room you know what you're like you know what you're really like if you take your giftedness and you compare it to the needs of the world. And the, the labor and the work that God has called us to. You know what you're like? You're just like a little boy with a sack lunch. You just bring your little sack lunch to Jesus. And and, and man, no way this can feed 25,000 strong. No way. But you bring it to Christ. And that's all you are. And you bring it to Him. And you use it to multiply. And to feed thousands. And then let me say something on the other side of that. In closing too. Though, the, you know. Anybody in this church, anybody in this room that feels like you are the most unuseful member of the body of Christ. just I'm just not. I'm the most un- You know, God can't use me. I can't be a laborer. Uh, I'm not like them, so I'm not a part of the body of Christ. I want to speak to you for just a minute. You're, you're not like a Polish You're like Priscilla and Aquila, maybe. I want to speak to you. Listen, you're either going to believe this verse or you're not. God uses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. Now, I've said the truth. You are either going to believe that and say, man, that's right. God uses the weak things of the world. Like me. I'm qualified to labor because I'm weak. You're going to believe that in labor or you're not going to believe that and you won't be a laborer in the kingdom of God. What do you choose? I want to encourage you to choose to believe, uh, like H- Hudson Taylor, who who uh, God used Hudson Taylor to take the gospel and spread it all over China. And he said about himself that God just found a man that was weak enough to trust Him. Just weak enough to trust Him. God uses the weak things of the world. Let me close with that. Father, thank you so much for these words and uh, for this example of you raising up laborers in your kingdom, sending them to Ephesus, Lord, and planting a church there. And God, you have done that throughout the centuries. You have raised up laborers again and again and again, and you have only used weak men and women because that's all you have to work with, Lord. And so, God, I pray, I pray for us here, God, that you would make us, you would make us a church. Filled with laborers. Diverse laborers for your glory. God help us to see the beauty. Of diversity and unity. God protect us from these sinful mindsets. Please God protect us from these mindsets. That look to others as if. As if because there's something. We're not a part of the body of Christ. Or look down on other people. Because they're not like us. God I pray that you would rid us of these sinful mindsets. And help us to see the beautiful diversity. And giftings that you put in your church. And God, let that produce in us, please, a church full of diverse labor. And God, be glorified. Lord Jesus, be exalted through your church. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.